0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and I am joined today by news editor Brady Gerrard. How are you doing?
1: I'm very good, thank you, John.
0: Good. And companies editor, Ian Smith, how are you? in?
2: Not too bad, John. How are you?
0: I'm all right. It's been a busy week, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's starting to get busy. Plenty going on in terms of corporate news this week.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've obviously... We're about to publish the FTSE 350 review, which is a huge undertaking that we do every year. 40 pages of uh, of your finest analysis. Yes,
2: sector by sector, across uh, every stock in the FTSE 350. We're looking at the trends and picking on a lot of the stocks. It's really interesting, a few kind of overarching themes this year. Obviously, the Brexit vote-related fall in sterling having an impact, higher interest rates in the States having an impact, and also recovering commodity prices, so a lot going on. Yeah. Companies.
0: yeah, absolutely. So we won't discuss the whole thing at length, otherwise we could be here for quite some time. But we, we will sort of nip in and out of the FTSE 350 throughout the course of this podcast. Lots going on, as you say, and in the corporate world. Some bad news. You know, the profit warnings are starting to mount up this year. We've had a few more today, obviously not in this week's magazine. But yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting picture. There is sort of bulliance out there. You know, the Dow hitting 20,000 for the first time ever. But at the same time, we're seeing some kind of tricky trading performances across
1: the board absolutely you note that sort of stock market high in the us i kind of find that very interesting as the contrast for one of the numbers in the seven day section about 23 billion was the size of the order book for a 40 year uk government bond so while you've got this sort of, as you say, ambulance around the stock market and the Trump trade and everything, there's clearly a desire still for a certainty of a level of income, 40 years out as well, from the UK government. So I find that really interesting. But yes, as you say, we've had some poor corporate updates recently. Um, obviously, one that's in our news section this week, which we might as well touch upon, is, is BT, of course.
0: Yeah, now, this, I mean, this isn't entirely to do with a poor trading backdrop. This, no. is, this is uh, Partly, some jiggery-pokery that's been going on over in Italy.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, um, that, that's the bigger bulk of the problem, is that they they had flagged this potential problem earlier, or I should say late last year, um, the issue being brought to their attention by a whistleblower last summer. Um, they had in October last year said they reckoned the cost of what's happened in Italy would be about 145 $150 million Mark. What, what, what has happened before we go on? Um, yeah, sure. So what has basically happened is, in the words of, BT is a sort of a complex set of accounting transactions that effectively make it look as if the Italian division has been making more money than it has done. I think, in essence, it's effectively not sort of booking all the costs that it should have done. And obviously this has been now, a light has been shone upon this, and BT now reckons that the write-down will be £530 million, obviously a lot greater than the initial estimate that they predicted back in October.
0: Yes, and a lot greater, it seems, than that business was ever likely to make in a single year, even when it was cooking the books a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is one thing. One of the comments um, that was put out yesterday by some of the people who invest in the stock was that they were surprised at the magnitude of the hit it caused, given that the Italian division contributed less than 100 million cash profits last year. And the the group total of cash profits was 6.58 billion. So it is a small amount. So the, the fact that this has had such a large impact on BT, the shares on the day were down pretty much a fifth by the end of the trading day. But
0: yeah, it's huge. I mean, that's it was, I mean, yeah, it's not for, top its value.
1: Yeah, for such a vast company. And of course, this now compounds problems that people have with BT anyway. I mean, there, there are people that invest in BT with the knowledge of the fact of its pension deficit, which is very large, and the uh, the fact that the regulator Ofcom is on BT's back about open reach. So there are issues, but obviously people sort of they still like BT because it's got a, a relative sort of certainty of its business. It's not too complicated, is doesn't change too often, and people kind of like what they see as a sort of stability about it, and this has kind of shaken that belief a little bit for some.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me that investors have uh, quite short memories here, because they've had p- problems in the global services division before. I think it was 2008 when we looked it, it up to remind ourselves that, that it had to write off something close to $2 billion.
2: Yeah, so the problem they had in 2008 was that it was more about their expectations of the cost efficiencies they would get out of contracts. So I think it was more forward looking in terms of unrealistic assumptions, um, which actually led them to do a whole um, top down reorganization of the entire global services business, which is kind of provides managed IT network and other services. So it's quite interesting. If you look at what they did at the time, how they tried to address it, as I say, it was quite a top-down organisation. They tried to reduce the number of operational hubs in the business and make kind of top-level changes. But now the problems that are being had seem again to relate to the kind of cost efficiencies uh, in the contracts and how profitable the contracts are, except that, crucially, it's different because it's a misstatement of past uh, performance so it's you know it's a slightly bigger issue and today there was today being thursday there was a news story saying that there has been a criminal investigation opened into the claims as well so it won't in be italy. in italy so it won't be the last we hear about it but it does look like there is some overlap with the problems that they had yet as you said not that long ago
0: yeah, I mean, I looked at this in a, in a previous job, actually, and it, it just seemed to me that they were having to spend huge amounts of money up front in a lot of these contracts and the actual terms of the contracts would, you know, would never enable them to make a, a decent return out of it. Perhaps that's why someone has decided to, to try and downplay the amount they're spending up front in, in Italy. It also reeks, to some extent, and I'm pretty sure some, uh, some, some you know, heavyweight investors and commentators have also said, that what has management been doing you know, why has the board level management not had its eye on Italy you know over the the last few years um, when there was always a risk of this kind of thing happening
2: and that they know in the past that they've had unrealistic assumptions yeah exactly right it, clearly the, the management rejig that they had at the time the organizational rejig they had at the time hasn't really taken in terms of making sure that the group level knows what's going on at the at the national level.
0: Yeah, I mean, some people have also suggested that, you know, they've got a bit carried away uh, in the kind of consumer side of things, uh, particularly with their investment in sporting rights. And, and, and that's one of the reasons perhaps they have taken their eye off the ball of a somewhat, you know, boring, to use a kind of, you know, a, a, the least disparaging word I can think of for managed IT service contracts. It's not the most exciting part of the business, sports.
1: I, I guess also those sports and the, 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 sort of the retail customers are also becoming very important because what, uh, what was also included in the announcement about all this um, shenanigans in Italy we're talking about was also the fact that um, another of their divisions which deals a lot with sort of local government and government contracts etc et that was also finding times a bit tough too so I think the way they wrote it kind of suggested that they know that sort of certain contracts were winding down but in some cases that was, that's been happening a lot more quickly than they expected to so they've also got this pressure in, the, in that division the one sort of corporate government division so in in effect you kind of they they are clearly wanting and almost need to look at the consumer sector more yes maybe that's caused problems elsewhere but it looks like that is going to be kind of the crux, potentially, of, of the near term future performance. Yeah,
0: but- I, mean, I mean, this kind of and this raises the Open Reach thing because you know there is pressure for them to uh, at least somehow within the existing structure um, operate Open Reach at an arm's length that doesn't give its consumer business uh, unfair leverage over its competition. Um, and that pressure is mounting, and BT's response has not seemed to have gotten far enough. And there, I would suggest there is a risk that at some point. They uh, they are forced to spin off Openreach in its entirety.
2: Yeah, and the position at the moment is that they will be forced to legally separate Openreach, but obviously how that is done will be crucial in terms of how much they retain the benefits of Openreach ownership. We should add that there is going to be a trading update um, a q3 update from BT on Friday so that might have some better news on the consumer side of the business to uh, outweigh some of this some of this bad news but yeah it's going to be crucial and a couple of interesting things over the past week on that one was that BT is going to consider now charging for its uh, sport packages which previously had been kind of giving away for free uh, and that had benefited it in terms of marketing its broadband um, contract and the whole open reach link that you mentioned there the other is that sky whose results came out uh, on Thursday they are are going to offer a dish free option from two thousand and eighteen so you won 't have to have the satellite dish and it 's interesting in terms of the consumers businesses that part of it is getting closer together in terms of the offering between the two businesses in the commoditization of you know live sport and just to mention just to cut the whole thing off sky actually had a constant currency turnover rise of 9% in their Italian business over the reported period. and It's much more of a consumer-facing business. Yeah, though. but it's much more of a consumer-facing business, which I think kind of demonstrates this. It's the difference between being a consumer-facing business or being, like BT, a business that still does a huge amount of the infrastructure and in the nuts and bolts, and yet all the focus both the group level and also regulators, is on the um, consumer-facing business for, for, for good reasons. But like you say, does it mean that it's distracting from what is still a huge part of what they do, which is the slightly unglamorous and also very costly and more costly than they have presented un- recently?
0: Un- unglamorous. That's a much nicer word than boring. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And, and uh, you know, what you just said kind of also supports the case for some kind of breakup of, of BT. It's too big to manage in its current form, with the various directions that management are being pulled in.
2: Yeah, and I think that it's definitely going to be addressed to an extent, regardless of what happens with open reach, because there is the um, kind of independent um, boss of that business and there's going to be, have to be a kind of board structure. So depending on how legally separate it is, I think there is um, an acceptance on you know, any side of the debate that BT can't continue to do it all in terms of managing it from a central kind of group structure.
0: Yeah, and BitBT is an important shareholding for for a lot of uh, private investors. I mean, uh, I guess a lot of people would have bought in uh, at the time of the flotation back in the 80s, if I remember rightly. I don't remember at all, actually, but uh, I think (laughs) it was in the 80s. What what do we think about the shares? I mean, this is is a big hit yesterday, down 20%. We spoke about Pearson last week, and Pearson is a company who, also saw so its shares fall very, very sharply after a profit warning. We're not convinced, as we write in this week's magazine, that uh, there is any light at the end of the tunnel there. Do we think there's any light at the end of the tunnel for BT here?
2: Well, the, I suppose the crucial difference is that Pearson's had to scrap its dividend, whereas BT has um, is holding on to it um, at the moment. So that's why the open reach thing is also really crucial, because... Investors will be very keen to see how BT's cash flows are affected by whatever happens to OpenReach and the ability of all that to actually support the dividend going forward. So, part of the reason Pearson was so hit was that it rebased its dividend uh, going forward.
0: Interesting. I'm just looking at the uh, FTSE 350 media, or we call it telecoms and broadcasting, in fact. Uh, BT obviously falls into. Uh, We've also got ITV in there. and There was some speculation this week that ITV, the takeover that has long been speculated, could finally be about to happen. And that's something we actually talk about in this piece here.
2: Yeah, it's something that we've... um been thinking for a while with all the, the kind of well, global um, mergers in this division that itv as a producer of content and content that makes quite a lot of money could be a takeover target of one of the kind of b- big media groups
0: yes i mean you know it's kind of supports the old argument that content is king and bt's obviously been investing heavily in content but it, it does come at a cost And i think we saw the S- sky saying the same themselves today you know the extra cost of football rights is uh, is proving uh, challenging
2: yeah, definitely. And they're in this big um, battle um, that's hurt both companies in terms of the amount that they're having to pay for football. And I think the idea was floated that they could actually share the football rights and, and thus not have to pay so much as groups. It, Sky is also having some um, some joy with its now TV offering. So the idea big fan. Yeah, and I, I've i used it to too, I have to admit. So, it, you know, the idea is that you can just buy a day pass or a monthly pass to access certain um, sports matches. And this has been the case for a while with um, Sky and other broadcasters, that you could buy the rights to watch a boxing match, you know. So that's been going on for a long time, right? But I think that what you're probably seeing is more of that, as I said, commoditization of sports content, where people are maybe, maybe going to do more of a pick and mix. I want to buy this game at this particular time. I might want to watch this season. I might want to watch just this month uh, i've been watching a couple of the super bowl games just as it, the finale reaches but i wouldn't want to have to pay for sports rights the whole year for example so it, i think it's quite interesting yeah it's a big cost for the businesses to have to pay for these rights but obviously the premier league are going to want to get as much as they can from these groups so i'm not sure how they'd feel about splitting it up
1: with those costs as well if, if the costs are a pressure i mean uh, something like that is probably a condition that's going to be a factor that my um, that may well spur M&A like you say John so if there's if there's this increasing competition and increasing cost that can obviously be a good rationale to merge like we've seen with the gambling stocks and you see regulation and the potential pressures on them the solution in the industry has been to merge and get bigger so it's this completely conceivable that we'll see a deal for ITV. And Fox um, and Sky, the, the mooted
2: takeover, a big part of that is about creating a content creator, you know, a content owner across um, many different kind of genres and, and types of content. So, yeah, that kind of merging to create players that have a large amount of content to sell, is definitely happening. You can see how that's responding to the threat of Netflix and Amazon Video and all these other young upstarts.
0: Indeed. Indeed. Um, let's talk about uh, another company that's not in the magazine, but we can use it as a useful segue into some fifty three fifty discussion. Unilever had some uh, had some numbers today, not pretty.
1: Yeah, it's a funny one because the shares um, are down more than four percent, and getting on for nearly five uh, when I when I left to come down and do the podcast. Um I listened to the call this morning. I, I think what's what's got most people being a bit negative is that is a is a weak Q four compared to the other quarters of its trading year. But actually, as a sort of uh, a performance for the year, it's not too bad. I mean, they they achieved all of their goals of growing above market share, increasing their core operating margin. And yeah, it seems really like a bit of a a potential overreaction to a slightly downbeat outlook from uh, Paul Polman, the chief executive. They have had trouble in some of their big markets like India and Brazil um india obviously the demonetization there with the removal of large de- denomination notes has impacted not just unilever but other consumer goods companies too and um, brazil is also fighting its way out of recession i mean mr Pullman on the call said he thought actually with brazil the bottom had been reached there so he's becoming a bit more upbeat about brazil but obviously um, from a numbers perspective it is a very large market and so for us to see proper recovery there maybe that's some way off and i guess developed markets are you know Omorobunds—they're a bit of a drag um Still got deflation in Europe. We've obviously had um, very high profile back in the last year. Price rises by Unilever. I mean, the UK only accounts for about 5% of revenue. So while the the storm in the Marmite pot was well covered. Very nice, thank you. It was, um, you know, it's not a big proportion of the group's sales. So yeah, I mean, we have the company on hold. We moved it back to hold at the 4 year results last year when it was approaching um, an all time high in the share price. So I think we've been sort of um, vindicated on that move. But yeah, I think the the bearishness today seems seems strong to me.
0: Okay. I and mean, one thing you mentioned in your FTSE three hundred and fifty write up um, is that uh, as branded goods suppliers, they're kind of facing a bit of uh, bit of concern uh, around consumers choosing instead to uh, down-trade to non-branded products, white-label goods.
1: I think that's completely a conceivable worry for these companies. Um, I mean, you've got companies such as like McBride, which makes um, cleaning products for, I think, nearly all of the supermarkets. So if you're buying a sort of a, a sort of Tesco cleaning product, or whatever it might be, a Sainsbury's one, there's a high chance that McBride made it and also I mean going back to I think last week we were talking about this was um, Premier Foods even they who have their own branded goods and make goods for supermarkets their own brand goods they saw um, a greater portion of volume move to own brand goods in their mince pies business away from Mr Kipling so there is an example of this happening already and it's perfectly conceivable if you're Uh, a lover of Marmite and it's gone up however much in your local supermarket you might try the, the Tesco or the Morrisons or the Sainsbury's branded version just to see what it's like. And if you do that, you might stick with it, given the potential consumer squeeze we've got apparently coming this year. So, yeah, I think you know, I highlighted it as a as a very potential and conceivable worry. Are we going to be talking about homegrown Vegemite again?
0: No, absolutely not. <laughs> and this, I tried it, I don't like it. <laughs> I like Marmite. <laughs> so you'll be coughing up. <laughs> Indeed, I'll be coughing up. I mean, you know, so, so we've talked about, you know, content is king in, in the media world. Brands working in the consumer goods world
1: they might I still be they I might still, still be, be um, and things like innovation and developing them like things, silly things like squeezy packets of Hellman's mayonnaise like that gets people buying it again so which I cannot comprehend nor me but <laughs> there you go and we did pick up on
2: a similar trend in the clothing retailers so there's something that our retail correspondent Harriet Russell has been taking a look at is whether you will get this squeezed middle the idea that People in the kind of mid-market will trade down in terms of the clothing goods they'll buy, whereas actually the upmarket um, kind of pound will be better protected. And there wasn't a very good trading um, period over Christmas for next, which led some people to think that was the case. But then we had better trading from M&S. So it's still early days. And uh, at the moment, in terms of what the economic picture is going to be like this year, 2017, uh, the jury is still out on that. We haven't quite as had the um, collapse yet, but that's before the impacts of inflation are really felt. Mm. I
0: and mean, I think there's one area where people are a bit more fussy about the brands they buy, uh, and I certainly wouldn't go the own label route in the booze uh, industry. The AGO is seems to be proving that that point has some good numbers today.
1: Yeah, they did. Uh, the market likes them um, uh, again. Key things from the call this morning were. Um, it's U.S. performance. It's doing a lot better there. Um, that had been an area of weakness for the company. But their sort of focus on their brands, um, their big campaigns out there, like Keep Walking, was their sort of big Johnny Walker campaign out there, which which plaudits from a sort of uh, an industry perspective, but also consumers lapped it up too. Um, and also things like reserve brands, so um, sort of the slightly more expensive um, versions of whatever it is Smirnoff or Johnny Walker or their other brands, um, have been doing very well, particularly in areas like China, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, they had some good updates. So their strategy of focus on those big brands, C- Captain Morgan being another one, seems to be working. They're catching up with the pace of growth in the US market. That's been a, a, a key thing, I think, over there.
0: And uh, dollar strength versus sterling weakness, uh, helping them out. That will indeed help. Yeah, huge amounts, in fact, I think that. Yeah, a large proportion.
1: It. I think it's something like 40% of sales, roughly. That's uh, approximate.
0: Yeah, not much left in the uh, the beverages sector, but certainly from the alcoholic uh, perspective. No, obviously, Sad <laughs> Sub, Sub <laughs> Miller
1: went last year. Um, well, back in the 2015, really, was when the deal was kind of struck. Um, so, yeah, it's all, all a bit um, soft and, and still in the beverages sector now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite interesting, uh, this sector. The, obviously, there's one company that isn't in it that we, uh, that we like,
1: which is Fever Tree, because it's on a But... Uh, yeah, and again, they had a very good trading update the other day. Um, just yeah, remarkable growth. Um, uh, people keep questioning how long it can continue, and it just it just keeps on keeps on giving and giving.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Gin and tonic.
0: Oh, you can't be a nice gin and tonic. Clearly not. Okay, what else have we got in the first three fifty that really struck you, Ian? Um, as you were mulling through the forty pages of uh, of analysis, which I read over the weekend. Oh, was It's was a, it a fun weekend. <laughs> yeah, good bedtime <laughs> reading. Um, there were a few, yeah, as I said earlier, a few things that
2: were interesting. Um, the kind of uptick in long-term rates has been good for life assurers. So since the election of Trump, uh, life assurers have um, pushed above the all share. And... Um, Higher interest rates are better for their solvency levels, but they're also better for the income they receive on the investments that they're forced to hold. So you kind of get that double effect. And they also, you know, make the products that they um, offer more attractive to, you know, consumers, retirees, I should say. Um so, yeah, they, they, it might be after a long term squeeze on interest rates, um, you know sign of better times for insurance companies and also life insurance companies and also banks. So that was an interesting um, trend that we might start to be seeing the beginning of. Although actually, as Bradley said, you know, the fact that there is so much um, appetite for long term government debt um, suggests that people perhaps don't think we're going to see yields go much higher over the kind of medium uh, medium term. But yeah, it's the, definitely that kind of interest rate backdrop cut through a few sectors.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking of banks, uh, RBS has some news today. Big, big fines. But, yet, but we knew about that. Big fines, but
2: and yet the share price is up five percent today. So it
1: wasn't quite as big as expected. Is that why?
2: Well, yeah, I think. They they added another 3.1 billion in terms of provision for past mis-selling of mortgage backed securities. Not fines, yeah. yeah, provisions. And uh, that took up to 6.7 billion for what they've booked so far. I think if you try and interpret why the share price went up, some people are taking it as a sign that perhaps we're close to the agreement with the Department of Justice in the United States um, over that mis-selling. Perhaps the fact that there's been this extra, that might be close to being it now. What the. Uh, bank also said was that if you took into account these provisions at the end of September, if you had taken them into account, the net tangible assets of the bank would have been about three hundred eleven p a share, and that what that means is that the price to net tangible assets um, ratio was about point eight. So it kind of shows you that that kind of um, discount is still there even after this. So shareholders are still thinking there's going to be some further hits to book value, um, but perhaps that is closing and the share price is up, uh, as I say, quite strongly today and it's got some good momentum at the moment and it's moving towards its kind of pre-referendum level. And generally with banks, we have a piece in the uh, magazine this week about Standard Chartered that's been kind of the best performing uh, bank over the past year or so. Where well, obviously that has been benefited from uh, the commodities um, market and the you know emerging markets improving, but this general expectation that interest rates are going to rise are going to benefit banks because of how they make money uh, from the spread between um, mortgage rates and and, and deposit interest.
1: Interestingly, on Standard Chartered, it's trading on the same so naught point eight times forecast net tangible assets for the end of twenty seventeen. So it's interesting those two banks are on the same yeah. kind of valuation. I know they've got pretty different business models, but it's kind of interesting to see, obviously Standard Chartered, which we've become a bit more bullish on at that rating, whereas RBS on that rating we're like, well, yeah, it's better. There's but there's still problems to come. It's just it's kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, and I think what what um, is really good about the piece that Emma Powell, our banking correspondent, wrote is that she gets into the nuts and bolts of the standard chartered recovery story, which is very much a stuttering one. And you have to get into the numbers on the kind of loan impairments, uh, the return on equity targets, which are still pitiful, um, but it's not quite as bad as some people were expecting it to get. Um, But still, there's a big question mark over emerging markets when interest rate rises come through about how strongly emerging market economies can hold up um, given the amount of debt that's denominated in dollars.
0: Yes, and given what donald trump may or may not do which is, seems to be a bit of a moving feast I and mean, what was what was the uh, what has the president been up to this week
1: bradley what hasn't he been up to s- <laughs> s- s- signing executive orders left right and center i think he signed one on abortion there's comments apparently about torture today trade obviously which is more relevant for us oh, the wall um, the wall ashton as
0: well. chairs were up i uh i understand i'm
1: sure some chairs are up <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I guess the the most sort of relevance of economic ones at the moment, or for the global economy, one would argue, I suppose, um, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a trade agreement sort of brokered by President Obama. Donald Trump's kind of torpedoed that, and he's also it's a not- bad deal. Yeah, a bad deal, <laughs> as he probably tweeted in capital letters at midnight one night. Um, And also the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is between the US, Canada and Mexico. He's also not keen on that too. I was reading a piece yesterday that apparently Obama wasn't massively keen on that either and was considering kind of tweaking it. But I think... um the view of Donald Trump changing it is that there's potentially a bit more sort of um, fear around that just because of his, the, the scale with which he might want a renegotiation and how, um, how much likelihood there is of him kind of achieving his goals. And if he can't and he walks away, what that could mean for Canada and Mexico, um, who are obviously big. Um, you know, they both trade both ways quite a lot with the US.
0: Yeah, actually, I updated the COPOC signals this month, finally, after a couple of months. And uh, it's an overwhelmingly bullish picture. Pretty much everything on buys, except for bonds, as you would imagine, which all went negative uh, this month. Um, but one equity market in the world turned negative this month. Can you guess which it was? Mexico. Mexico, of course. So, yeah, I mean, terrible it's, it, problems, is yeah. yeah. it is troubling. It is troubling. Especially
2: they're... depending on how they you know, get them to pay for the wall. Um, I thought what was interesting about the trans- Well, they said they're
1: not going to, quite categorically. Yes,
2: but in terms of what um, kind of import... Charges and other things. I guess
1: more, more feasible is the, the the production of goods. Like if if Donald Trump really does put pressure on companies to move production from Mexico to the US. That's going to have a real tangible yeah. effect. Well, they're economy. already
2: suffering, aren't they, from the yeah. kind of the strength of the dollar. It's causing actual social problems in the country. I do yeah. think with the Trans-Pacific Partnership just quickly, that um, it was interesting that some people were saying China might kind of step into the breach where US was there. and The original agreement was supposed to be creating a trade partnership and a bulwark against Chinese influence, right? So that's actually quite an interesting flip. So like you said earlier, John, maybe there's longer term impacts on uh, the trade in, w- between the emerging markets Markets and the developed markets,
0: mm, just like the EU uh, was was once, or the original intention behind uh, the EEC or whatever it was then, uh, was as a bulwark against the US dominance. So, you know, mm-hmm. look what happened there. Um, I mean, I'm going to mention the dollar because we have got a feature this month, uh, from uh, this week even, from uh, Neil Wilson over at Etx Capital on uh, on the dollar and the outlook for that, and concerns that if the dollar continues to strengthen, uh, the US may actually. Take steps to to weaken it to to a more competitive level. Within there, there's some very interesting charts that I put together, uh, which which show how the uh, the progression of American imports versus exports, the trade balance uh, over the last uh, twenty years or so, twenty thirty years, and it you know it it has become more of an importing country. The the, the trade deficit is widening, uh, and a lot of that trade deficit is with is with China. So I mean, you know, there is there are some numbers behind what Trump is saying, whether or not. Protectionism in the form that he, he is imagining it uh, is the answer is another question altogether. What I would say is, um, given these protectionist noises coming from very very strongly from from Donald Trump, uh, what chances does Theresa May have, uh, who I understand is on a plane right now on her way to meet Donald Trump, of actually striking a trade deal with the US that actually brings us any benefit whatsoever?
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, oddly enough, I looked at the, the trade figures um, last week, and the UK's sort of. Um, trade to the u.s is pretty balanced in terms of the amount we import versus export and it's quite balanced so we're in a pretty neutral position i'd suggest kind of going into talks which is possibly a good thing um but yeah you're right i mean with with donald trump's agenda it does sort of seem uh, it it is it would be very interesting to see what Theresa may returns with or promises or predicts it'll be yeah really intriguing
2: he is fundamentally against jobs moving out of the u.s so the idea that he would strike a deal where UK are providing more of the kind of um, services into the US, based from, from produced by jobs here, is quite difficult for me to square, I think.
0: I must admit, I don't really understand the nature of what we, we actually sell to the US. I wouldn't imagine it is large volumes of cheaply made consumer goods of the nature, of the kind that they're importing from China. I would imagine our, our exports to the US are much more high-tech
1: yeah, and bespoke, and like you mentioned, um, was it Ashstead whose uh, shares rose on the promise or potential promise of a of a wall being built along a massive border? I mean, maybe it, I think it's probably probably like it's more specialist, maybe construction based, maybe in industrial niche businesses that are, that are the well, soft export soft exports as well. But I think it's quite interesting
2: actually, the FTSE 350 50, um, to look at that trade deficit in the UK generally and how the weakening pound is impacting those in, in, industries. And I think some of them will see it as you know, an overdue boost to um, their kind of pricing power in important markets.
0: Yeah, I mean, UK manufacturing figures have have looked good since, uh, since the referendum. Uh, and the weakening the, and the subsequent weakening of the pound.
1: Yeah, they have. There was um, a survey from the Confederation of British Industry uh, this week, which showed that domestic orders actually rose at the fastest pace since July twenty fourteen. That's in the three months to January. Um, so that's really good. One thing that was curious about the uh, survey, though, was that export orders, while they grew, the, the rate at which they did so. Um, isn 't perhaps what people might have expected, given the uh, the size of the fall in the pound versus other currencies, so that 's kind of interesting this obviously the the received wisdom that um, a weak pound means a boost in exports. It's kind of happening now, but not to the extent I don't think people thought it would. Well, you're seeing with some companies that what they're doing is using
2: that translational benefit in order to actually reduce their prices in certain markets to increase market share. So it won't all go kind of mechanistically through. And we saw that with um, Games Workshop, actually. They had that big boost because they sell so many kind of figurines and other things um, in the US market. And they took advantage of the, you know, the, the more of the kind of, the the currency benefit in order to reduce certain prices in the states thereby kind of solidifying that so yeah there's going to be transmission stuff but it is really interesting to see um how it passes through but i I think it's really interesting that data backed up the other earlier manufacturing output data we had i think just maybe at the beginning of the year which said that there was both good kind of domestic um and also foreign consumption for in the for manufacturing products
1: although the domestic stuff as well i should say that kind of is being driven partly at the moment by fears of inflation of course right. there 's a lot of, sort of stocking and companies worry that prices are going to rise quite a lot so there's a lot of there's been a lot of sort of yes yeah, sort of inventory stocking uh, in some industries on the basis that it could be much more expensive to buy goods very soon. So that's helping the domestic um, numbers. But of course, you know, the, we've had economic readings out today for the UK and they were quite strong. So perhaps there is actually a genuine strength there as well as a sort of, um, a bit of protection against possible yeah. future inflation. Best in the G7. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's the, the fastest race in the world, but no, yeah. it's not,
0: is it? It's uh, the tortoise versus the slightly slower tortoise. The <laughs> tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Theresa so May is obviously, as I've just said, off to meet uh, Donald Trump. Uh, she also made an important speech this week about the UK's uh, new industrial strategy, uh, which we, get, we give a brief mention to because I think we're going to cover this in, in greater depth in the future. Um, more support for industry, for science, moving, creating uh, high-tech jobs around the country, engineering jobs, et cetera. Et cetera. I presume, I hope, I believe, actually, that it's going to have uh, an interesting effect for, for, for many of the UK sectors that we cover in, in this week's report. And, and actually, you know, when you look at the FTSE 350, the thing that always strikes me is actually how many really quite advanced companies we have in there, um, which, which Mark's covered in obviously some detail.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And but also we have a uh, sector dropping out this year which is technology hardware.
0: Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. So
2: so and and a new one joining in the form of payment services kind of companies. So yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, to your point about the high-end component manufacturers, we've seen a lot of UK engineers and exporters trying to move up the value chain using that expression, but trying to get into more of the higher margin specialist component bridge, uh, uh, business in order to protect themselves from downturns in the energy market, for example. So, yeah, some of that work that they've done to really kind of solidify um, their market positioning and, yeah, get the higher margin kind of products. Th- yeah, it does strike you just how many very specialist companies that we have of size uh, listed um it's, on the it's, interesting, the market.
0: it's interesting you mentioned actually you know the the oil and gas exposure that many of our sort of industrial companies our engineers actually had um that's something that kind of alex mentions in his piece about lng uh this week and the potential overcapacity there it's the sector focus um that actually you know when oil was booming a lot of oil companies just got too flabby uh and i and i suspect you know there was a degree of complacency in that and i I would I would argue that there was a degree of complacency among the engineers that were supporting that that sort of flabby expansion. They're they're in shape now. They're lean, and I think we're pretty positive on on their prospects.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And I, I think also the oil majors are now um, have been forced to get lean themselves, and that comes across in Alex's piece in the FTSE three hundred and fifty um, that you know they've reduced their production costs su- substantially. So now that we've had um, the OPEC agreement um, come through and the support that that is given to the oil price, we are starting to see real benefit for some of the uh, oil majors, and obviously uh, on the other uh, side with um, some of the uh, miners, they have had huge improvements um, in their share price based on obviously the rise in their respective materials, but also because they have made operational progress in the same way. So that a lot of that self-discipline across different sectors has really is really starting to benefit companies now. So that was also a theme.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned payment services, which I think is an interesting sector, because that kind of plays into a trend that we've talked about for a long time, which is kind of, it's kind of the changing nature of consumer habits and, and, and shopping habits. Um, and we, we're seeing that, I think, you know, what struck me in the, the FTSE 350 piece this, this year was, was kind of how big the packaging sector has become. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I made exactly the same note down here. The kind of e commerce as impacting on uh, packaging and paper and the performance of that sector this year, and also kind of creating this new subsector um, in terms of payment services. Whereas you can see just the, the numbers that e- retail e commerce sales uh, globally will hit $2.4 trillion this year. So it's, there's a huge market here for um, companies to take hold of. And yeah, you know, in the UK, we have a few of these uh, companies that are really. Tapping into this changing retail trend, and on the packaging side, some of the uh, packaging companies in the UK are highly specialist in terms of the uh, packaging that they provide, and that is really helping them with this move towards click and collect and the kind of irregular shaped packaging market and all these things that seem <laughs> unglamorous. <laughs> what sort of things are people shipping?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, basically anything and everything, uh, and also the kind of point of sale um, kind of pa- packaging as well, and um, the. the That you have in store to kind of promote certain um, items. So, yeah, the the kind of the higher end, kind of more sophisticated packaging that some of the UK companies do uh, do is really meeting that trend. And we also al- al- already have seen the impact on the property market of the kind of out-of-town big boxes, um, which was probably a trend more for last year's uh, FTSE 350.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, what, you know, we, we, kind of, we made a conscious decision, a semi-conscious decision to try not to pin every sector to Brexit uh, this year. But I mean, I, th- I think real estate uh, house building is one sector that you can't really avoid the impact of the referendum and, and the likely exit from the EU?
2: No, exactly right. I mean, Partially because of the story told by the share prices over the year that house builders really had a yo-yo of straight after the referendum, people getting very nervous about the impact of the vote um, on the residential property market in the UK and uh, sales prices. And is this the end of the cycle for house builders? Um, And then after the Bank of England cut the interest rate uh, and the market seemed a lot more strong um, or resilient than some people had thought, they bounced back. Because actually, they are still paying out huge amount in terms of dividends. Their balance sheets are more secure. Um, the supply and demand dynamic hasn't changed at all. Um, so now the question mark on the residential side um, is how much turnover is there in the market? And will we see now with the triggering of Article 50, which kind of hits in the middle of the spring, uh, kind of buying and selling houses season, will that kind of have more of a negative effect on prices? But as it stands, there's a kind of stasis there. Uh, But the other side of it, which is the kind of commercial property market, that's where we, and we discussed on this podcast at the time, you know, that market really struggled with even how to value some of these office blocks. That is really what Brexit is kind of hanging over like a spectre at the moment is the office market in London particularly and what will the impact of um, Britain's exit from the EU, what will that impact be on uh, the jobs market in the UK, particularly the services sector. So, yeah, we couldn't really ignore that because it's so important for the um, property market.
0: It's interesting though, no, no uh, diminishing of appetite for uh, construction of new skyscrapers. I think a new one got approved today, uh, Leadenhall, a big one on the corner of Leadenhall Market.
1: Yeah, another, another yeah. as you say, huge building for London. I, I just, just coming back to the house builders briefly as well, obviously this week we had um, a bit of news flow because um, Schroder's, which is a big um, shareholder in Bovis Homes, has kind of agitated for the company to be taken over. Um, so that's kind of interesting with what Ian was kind of saying there about the, the house building sector and its links to Brexit. And I guess if we do see uh, a potential pressure on sort of transaction volumes, that kind of thing, maybe that would be a catalyst for some M and A and while sort of the um the potential sort of suitor for BOVIS um, which was um widely sort of suggested to be Berkeley, they them themselves weren't interested, but people were interested in Berkeley taking on BOVIS, if there is a pressure on transaction volumes perhaps we could see some M and A in the sector to kind of support that and like we said in other sectors, you know, gain scale to weather pressures of the market Mm. and also regulatory pressures there being that paper out from the government looking at
2: how they can kind of um encourage house builders shall we say to um, you know develop more of their land more quickly so yeah that, that Bovis it was very interesting there have been a couple of uh, pieces rather critical of Bovis following the uh, kind of trading update that they had at the end of last year saying that some completions had fallen into this year and you had the departure of the chief executive I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago or, as part of that looking at how their return on capital had really lagged others in the sector and they had made improvements to it but they are a slow builder relative to others in the sector so so you can understand why some people in the sector would want a company like Berkeley to come in and actually run the business. We had results this week also from Cress Nicholson, which is probably demonstrating the kind of builder that people would want Bovis to be. Completions were on time, up modestly, average selling price was up, and the dividend was up, and the balance sheet is in good nick. Um, and I suppose some of the problems with Bovis is that it has made improvements, but its return on capital employed, which is the crucial return metric in the sector, just hasn't kept pace with the others, which have all been doing very much the... The same thing in terms of trying to buy land in places where they're going to get the best return um, and managing their business operationally in a way that's going to get the best return. So they're maybe not getting the credit for the steps they've made, but others in the sector have made kind of further strides than they have.
0: Slow builder never heard that one before On uh, in, a, in a financial sense i mean i've experienced <laughs> <laughs> and actually
2: that you know and it feeds in. well i mean that that was they weren't even my words that was one of the kind of analysts that were looking at them was saying you know widely acknowledged as the slow build and they have acknowledged that they have problems in terms of asset turn turning around buildings um so, and- so it's
0: not that they're taking their time to to get a better finish it's just that they are just worse. Well they're not getting, yeah, well I mean yeah you
2: you could look at it in a couple of ways but effectively they're just not turning their houses around quickly enough and then there was a news report the other day saying that they were trying to encourage people to move into unfinished properties and also well, we don't i pick, want that to happen and also a I long picked snagging it. list yeah 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 exactly in terms of the snagging list there is actually quite an active campaign on facebook around bovis from the Bo- bovis victims group uh, as they describe themselves strong. yeah well so that's how they describe themselves uh, with all of the kind of snagging problems that a lot of their customers have had so there's clearly and i've spoken to them about this there is you know clearly a reputational problem that they're having around the kind of finishing finished product so it's not it all adds up to not a Particularly good picture about their ability to deliver good houses on time. So mm. yeah, it's interesting. But we've had a change in management now. We're having one, um, and you know a change in ownership probably shouldn't be ruled out.
0: Yeah, which manager are they replacing? Because that sounds like an operational thing to me. Was well, the it? CEO who's departing. Yeah, but he doesn't manage the building sites, does he?
2: No, but I suppose, you know, the, the return on capital employed is like a function of where you, buy the, where you buy the land and the kind of contracting decisions and things that you make. Mm. So surely that's a top-down kind of strategy. They've got, you must be setting the goals and targets
0: there. I guess so, yeah. I don't know. Don't build houses. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, let's, let's talk about one last uh, company, uh, which will give us a, a, an opportunity to discuss one last sector. Um, it's in the tip update section, uh, Easy Jack, which is one of yours, Bradley. Um, Again, it's not been a wonderful year for EasyJet. We're sticking with it, but what's going on there and what are the implications for the wider sector?
1: Yeah, 2016 was pretty bad for a few airlines, but it was particularly tough on EasyJet because they were impacted um, more greatly than some of their rivals by things like strikes and the continent, that kind of thing. Uh, the fall in the pound has also not helped EasyJet because they're... Um, they have big uh, a large amount of their trading is done in euros and dollars that hurt them the reason we're kind of keeping the faith of these jet is is really a long term argument that they are soon to be buying um, some larger planes which will help their cost base of course the big potential fly in the ointment is that um EasyJet's expansion plans are quite aggressive um compared to everyone else's. Um a lot of other airlines have been cooling, even if only marginally, their plans for expansion. So the, the the risk to my bullishness, I suppose, even in the long term, is that EasyJet gets these snazzy new planes which fit more people on board and therefore they reduce their cost per seat. That's all good. But of course, if uh demand in the industry remains at such high levels where it is now, then you could have a problem whereby the load factor which is sort of like the average percentage of all their planes how how much their field might not sort of grow which is obviously the the hope but EasyJet has cemented its position in the uk um it is dealing with a potential brexit issue in terms of it is going to be launching um, another operating license in a european country which will remove any problems should there be any um, regarding uh airlines ability to fly from the uk to europe treble free so that's good and yeah I guess the main the main overarching issue for the industry is uh, one of them is obviously the oil price. Um it certainly helps costs. It will continue to because obviously they hedge um for a couple of years out, but with the trajectory of um, oil prices rising, um I think uh investors very much need to keep an eye on the cost base of airlines and how much in a way it doesn't matter if revenue per seat is dropping as long as costs are falling more a big component of cost falling recently has been fuel if fuel's not falling it's got to come from the operations and i think that's going to be the key for the sector not just this year but for the next few years
0: yeah hotels we're not so keen on well, for no, I mean,
1: here. I have to say, I was looking I was looking back at the hotel sector and it hasn't been. A lot of the, a lot of the reasons for our bearishness um, are still being um, represented in analyst notes, such as like the peak in um, hotel growth in the US and revenue per available room. Those things are still being issued as concerns, but they haven't really transpired yet. And from a UK perspective, obviously, after the referendum, there was a huge spike in some of the um, share prices because of that large dollar earnings base, which obviously translates nicely into sterling. So. Our bearishness hasn't really worked in 2016, um, but as I said, the themes that made us a bit bearish are still um, being registered by analysts as realistic concerns. So,
0: Yeah, I've got to say, I, I don't buy the dollar earnings argument as a as a good reason for actually buying a share, because I, I think it could be temporary. Yeah, of course and, it could be. And, and yeah, you know, it's not, it doesn't make for a fundamentally good company. If a company's a, a good company, and it has some dollar earnings that give it a temporary translational boost, wonderful. But if it's a bad company that just so happens to have dollar exposure, no reason to buy it. Yeah. That would be my view.
1: Well, yeah, we'll we'll see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we will see. Okay. Well, thank you very much. We have barely touched the sides of the, uh, the FTSE 350 review. So uh, I do urge you to go out uh, and pick that up and have a good read. We we do it as a pull-out supplement so that uh, you can keep it handily by your, your desk as you, uh, you make your investment decisions as the year rumbles on. Because we've got such a big supplement, it's a slightly smaller magazine, but there is still plenty in it in the uh, results i like to pick up. And uh, we have Algie's uh, Petroski value screen, which is, uh, is one that does very well. Lots in the personal finance fund section, which they will be talking about tomorrow. And obviously all the usual comments uh, from, uh, from the likes of Bearball and The Trader and Dillo and Simon Thompson, who will be next week issuing his bargain shares for 2017. And we will uh, hopefully, if he can make his way in from uh, the Kent coast, uh, be in the studio to talk to us about them. So uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Ian. And uh, we'll be back again next week. FTSE 350 review, £4.90, all good news agents, or get online and subscribe. See you later.